This episode of Mollyful Answers is brought to you by Brave, a next-generation free web browser that focuses on ensuring your privacy and security. Take back control of your online activity and switch browsers to Brave today at brave.com slash fool. That's brave.com slash fool. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is also brought to you by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Bertram, I don't like turkey, bro camp. I don't know. Rubble, rubble. I shouldn't bother with this. <laughs> Personal finance expert Bye. here at The Motley Fool. In this week's episode, we're also joined by Olin Douglas. Hey, Olin. Hey, how's it going? Olin there is the former CFO of The Motley Fool, and he's now the head of Motley Fool Ventures. He's here to help explain the world of venture capital. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, I just have one thing. No, uh, I, I'm sorry. No, but there are seven parts to it. Oh, God. <laughs> and then a couple better. of birthday shout outs. So, by the laws that govern the provision of personal finance content, I'm required to point out that it's December. So, you have less than a month to do the typical end of year financial planning stuff you should do. So, number one, spend the money in your flexible spending accounts. Oh, um, yeah, so, I got to do that. Yeah. So, depending on your company in your medical flexible spending account, you may be able to roll over $500 to the next year, but you should find out now. Number two, contribute to your 401k, 403b, TSP, your employer sponsored account, generally speaking. So, uh, you have December 31st to get that done. Generally speaking, you can't send a check to your 401k, it has to be taken out of your paycheck. So, you can't wait until December 31st. You got to change it now, let your do whatever you have to do, whether to tell your payroll or just do it on the site, but you have to do it before December 31st. The limit for this year, maybe you found out you're getting a bonus and you're like, I want to get that money into my 401k. Mm-hmm. It's $19,000 with an extra $6,000 if you're 50 or above by December 31st. Why'd you look at me? Huh? <laughs> I, I'm just because you're so handsome. Oh, okay. So handsome. <laughs> Good news about 2020, the contribution limits are going up for 401k, so it's going to be 19500 with an extra 6500 if you're 50 or better. Um, and I'm bringing up that now because if you are, like me, the type of person who wants to get that in for the very first paycheck of the year, you have to change that generally in the last week of December. You can't wait until January 1st because your payroll department's already going to start processing this stuff. Here at The Fool, you have to do it by December 26th, but talk to your own payroll department. My birthday! Oh, happy birthday! No, December 26th. Yeah, I know. Okay. Uh, just so everyone knows, and I think most people know, for IRAs, you have until April 15th of the following year to do your contribution for this year. And unfortunately, those limits are not going up $6,000 with an extra $1,000 if you're 50 or older. Number three, convert traditional assets to a Roth. At this point in the year, you have a pretty good idea of how much taxable income you have. If for some reason this year was not a particularly good year for income, might be a good year to convert to the Roth. The money that you convert will be added to your taxable income, but then it'll grow tax-free from then on, so something to consider. Number four, make a contribution to your 529 college savings account. Now, most plans you have just till December 31st, although there are some plans that allow you to wait till April 15th, so check your own plan. Uh, you won't get a federal tax deduction, but for many states, if you participate in the state's plan, like we have here in Virginia, you do get a state tax deduction. So that's worth looking at. Check savingforcollege.com to see some of the provisions of your own state's plan. It also rates the plans. 
Uh, Morningstar also recently came out for its with its top ratings for 529 savings plans. Top four, Illinois, Virginia, hey! Utah, and California. You don't have to participate in your own state plan, your own state's plan. So if you don't get a state tax deduction and it's not a good plan, go somewhere else. Um, and I'm just going to point out that I think most, I thought most people know this, but they don't. And that is, what is the benefit of a 529 savings plan? Well, the money you put in grows tax-free if it's used for qualified higher education expenses. I thought most people knew that, but a recent survey from Edward Jones found that only 29% of people knew that. You can use it for tuition, you can use it for housing, even if someone's living off campus to a limit, uh, books, any supplies that are required to attend school, even a computer if it's required. So lots of ways you can use your 529. Is it just for my kids? Uh, it could also be for my kids, only one that you can contribute to, yes, that you can do it for anyone, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't use the money, you can transfer it, transfer it to another relative, even a cousin, or even to yourself, and you could use it later on. Mm-hmm. By the way, since we talked contribution limits, the contribution limits for 529s are set by the states. They range from a low of $235,000 total, not just one year total, to the highest is California. Anyone want to guess what the contribution limit for... California is for a five twenty nine million dollars five hundred twenty nine thousand oh, dollars. Okay, isn't Sorry, that clever of them? No, All right. So number that, five for cute. your year end things: tax loss harvesting and tax gain harvesting. We just talked about that in the previous mailbag episode. So just Google it. But it's something everyone thinks about at this time of year. Number six: charitable contributions. Uh, you can only deduct contributions to a charity if you itemize. And because of the higher standard deduction due to the new tax law, fewer people are itemizing, only 10%. And there was, I just re- recently read an article that actually, yes, contributions to charities are going down, partially because people are not able to deduct them. If you're at that point where you're right at the edge and whether you can deduct it or not, bunch your contributions. So either put two years' worth of contributions and do it this year, or wait until January 1st and make two years' worth of contributions that year. So you can bunch them in that same year and be able to deduct more. Hmm. Uh, and then finally, required minimum distributions. If you're over 70 and a half or you inherited an IRA from someone other than your spouse, you have to take money out every year by December 31st. If you don't need that money and you don't want to pay the taxes on that distribution, you can make what's called a qualified charitable distribution and have up to $100,000 go straight to a charity. Again, you, you don't get a deduction from that, but you don't take ta- pay taxes on the withdrawal. So that's something to think about if you don't need the money. So those are the end-of-the-year tax tips. Now, a couple episodes ago, I remarked on a couple of entities like me turned 50, and since then I came across a couple of other ones. So a week from now, December 12th to be specific, We'll mark 50 years since 13 financial services professionals met at a hotel outside the O'Hare Airport in Chicago. They were all financial services salespeople, but they decided, you know what? There should be a profession that looks at things holistically and not just sells insurance to this person or stock for this person being a stockbroker or a mutual fund salesman. Or back then, you sold tax shelters because the highest tax bracket was 70%. So basically, this was the beginning of the financial planning profession. So these 13 people got together. Out of that meeting came the International Association for Financial Counseling. In 1971, they came up with a curriculum of five classes that created the Certified Financial Planner designation. First class graduated in 1973 with 40-some people. Hmm. Now there are 80,000 Certified Hmm. Financial Planner practitioners, myself included. Hmm. Um, So happy birthday to the financial planning profession. And then my last birthday is, it was a tad more than 50 years ago, 
on October 5th, 1969, when a legendary TV show first aired. Some working titles for that show were Owl Scratching Time, The Toad Elevating Moment, The Nose Show, Vaseline Review, and Handlebar Mustache Huzzah. Anyone want to guess which show this was? Monty Python's Flying ah. Circus. Yes. So happy birthday, Monty Python. And to you, I say, me. And that, me. Allison, is what's up. <laughs> This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Brave, a next-generation web browser pioneering a better internet with privacy by default. It begins with giving you back control over who has access to your online activity. Brave's browser stops behavioral trackers and creepy ads following you across the web, which means that Brave performs up to eight times faster than other browsers while saving your battery life and reducing data costs. Setup is free and convenient. You can make the switch to Brave by importing your bookmarks with one click, and all your Chrome extensions work on Brave, too. If you opt into Brave's privacy-respecting ads, you get rewarded with tokens, which you can use to support your favorite content creators and access premium content. This helps give publishers back their fair share of web revenue. So I went ahead and downloaded Brave and hopped around to a few sites that I regularly visit. Bro, you're making a scrunchy face at me. I'm just very curious. So when you go to the different sites, it tells you how many trackers, cross-site trackers it blocked on your sites. Yes, right? So I'm it's like, probably okay. frightening, right? So, well, okay, so I go to the New York Times and it was about 26. I'm like, okay. That's a lot. I go to the Well, you just wait. Then I go to Wall Street Journal, and it was around 40 or so. Then I go to Yahoo Finance, mm. and the program's like, it's over 100. Don't worry about it. Oh, <laughs> we got it. So, uh, yeah. And I thought weather.com would have a lot of cross trackers because it's such it a slow so it's such a load. slow website, right? But it only had 12. Huh. But it's kind of funny because then when you go to the site like Wall, like WallStreetJournal.com, you don't see the ads. You just see white spaces where ads were. Oh, Isn't interesting. that interesting? It's yeah. kind of anyway. All right, so take back control of your online activity and switch browsers to Brave today at brave.com/fool. That's brave.com/fool to switch your browser to Brave. Yesterday was about big tech. Today is about us. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. So you know him as the guy who helped you negotiate a raise. At least I think that was the last time, Olin, we had you on the show, wasn't it? I think that was the last time. It's been very long, Alex. It has, and a lot has changed, because back then you were the CFO of The Motley Fool, and today you are a, diff- a changed man entirely. A famous I, man, actually. I am. I am. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I'm the George Foreman of venture capital. <laughs> yeah, I used to walk around crushing people's hopes and dreams when he asked me for money, and now I'm... Handed it out. out. (laughs) And everybody loves me. This is great. I should have did this a long time ago. I mean, they love the George Foreman grill. Why wouldn't they love you? (laughs) I have one and I love it. (laughs) Do you really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, see? So, yeah, so Olin was the CFO and now he heads up Motley Fool Ventures, which is a sister company of the Motley Fool here that engages in venture capital, which sounds so serious. Yes, it does. Um, (laughs) So, we thought we would ask you to come on the show and talk a bit about how venture capital works. Yeah. 
Is there so any- what is it? <laughs> so go, and I'm just going to sit back for the next 30 oh, no. minutes. Um, well, one thing, one question that Bro had just while we were sitting here is: Is there a difference between private equity and venture capital? Because I hear the terms and I use the terms interchangeably, <laughs> incorrectly, apparently. Well. well- it's because you have the mind of the SEC and the IRS, which look at private equity as a big uh, bubble of which venture capital is a uh, subset. Okay. So it's okay. a very technical um, response for, for people who are, who are very knowledgeable like yourself. Um, Thank you. Uh, for, for the rest of us, we tend to, in a very general form, think about private equity is a group, both are groups that invest in companies. Private equity tends to make Large investments in a small number of companies, you know, typically with the idea of potentially um, buying them. Venture capital makes relatively smaller investments in lots of companies with the idea that it ten- eventually those companies will be sold. So it's almost we're both investors in companies, one with the mindset of an ultimate buyer, the other one with the mindset of ultimate seller. Well, let's start with a bit of the kind of the nuts and bolts of venture capital, how it works, and then we can maybe step back and talk a bit more about the philosophy and trends and what's just what's going on in that world. So, all right, so nuts and bolts because it's kind of different. So the idea is that you are the per- you are a managing partner, general partner, managing director, managing director. Oh, yes. see, I'm off to a great start. All That's right, so as the managing director, you decided you wanted to start a venture capital fund. Yes. Then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, even before that, let me let me talk a little bit about uh, how it works in general, so we have the context. Oh yeah, because so. we did it a little different. <laughs> We're not satisfied doing things the way everyone else yeah. does it. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, so the way that venture capital works in general is there is someone uh, like me who decides that they have an investment idea and they want to go out and find companies and invest based on that thesis. Uh, the first step that a typical venture capitalist would do is go out and find investors to give them money, which they pool, and then also those investors give this um, that, that general partner they call it general partner the authority to go out and invest in companies that fit that thesis. And so that's how all venture capital works, and that's the way our venture capital fund works as well. Our investors are a little bit different. Our investors are the motley fool, as what you might expect, but also. Um, our subscribers and, and members. And we took a little bit of a unique approach with that. Your typical venture capital fund has, let's say, 20 to 40 uh, investors. Which are called limited partners. Which are called limited partners. Yep. Very good. They're oh, called limited partners. Yep. Yes. Excellent. Yes. And the idea is that you would get some uh, big checks from a small number of people. You collect the money, tell, tell them what you're going to do, and then you report to them from time to time, but you keep them to the side. We decided to turn the model upside down, and instead we aggregated relatively smaller checks from lots of people, and those people were, like I said, subscribers uh, to the Motley Fool Services, and we're trying to create a venture capital community. We invite them in and to see if we can do this all together. So it's a very much a community aspect and approach that we did, and we ended up with, instead of that 20 to 40, we ended up with over 800 LPs in our fund, which is Exciting. Which is insane. I mean, it's a lot. It's, it's unprecedented. It is unprecedented. We were we were not able to find anyone who's done uh, more than a couple hundred in a single fund. So it's a little bit more than what most people would expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Olin of a venture fund or a venture <laughs> capital, he he finds he or she finds the limited partners. They invest, mm-hmm. and then over time, 
you, Olin, are responsible for deploying that capital and investing in companies that are currently privately held. And there's also there's different stages of companies mm-hmm. that you invest in. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about what those stages yeah. are? Right. And so, uh, where most people uh, don't realize this, but even in the private company industry, there's a wide range of companies. At one extreme, there's a person who has an idea who's just getting started, and that's uh, what we call like a pre-revenue company. That extends all the way up to a company like a WeWork, who thought they were pre-IPO, but <laughs> oops, <laughs> oops. <laughs> that. and so there is a wide range of, of companies. What we do in Motley Pool Ventures is we don't invest in the person with an idea on a napkin, but it is much closer to that early stage where um, the company has a product in the marketplace. They have a few customers. They they do have some revenue, and we're trying to get in on them earlier. And using the WeWork as an example, as we know, WeWork was going to go public at $47 billion. It imploded, and the last number I heard was SoftBank coming in at $8 billion. So that's, that's a big, mm. big drop. If we had invested in WeWork when we wanted to, it was when it was probably closer to a $90 million valuation. Wow. So that disaster was still a 90x increase in value from from where we were. And that is part of our thesis is that if we can identify companies early and get in them soon enough, the upsides are really, really tremendous. And even in a in a difficult scenario like we work. Yeah. But with venture capital, you you there's no liquidity in the market. So mm-hmm. how do you then get your money back out and realize those winning returns? Yeah, and that is the interesting dynamic. And you are right. Venture capital is long term. You invest the money with the idea that there will be a transaction within the next 10 years or 10 to 12 years. And that's the idea. That's kind of the trade off for the significant upside that you can get is that there's a lack of liquidity in this time. And so that is one of the kind of the challenges if you are on a shortened time frame. Uh, But we do run the fund with the idea that for all the money we take in, we deploy it roughly over the first half of the fund, and hopefully there are exits, as they're called, when companies are sold to go IPO, that happen on the second half. And if I could add one thing that most people don't realize, the vast majority of exits in the venture capital com- fund come from the companies being sold. Only a small percentage, 1% or so, actually IPO. So the vast majority of exits are not the ones that you see in the newspaper and highlights. It's the, you know, the, the company X buying startup company Y for a certain amount of money. That's the majority of the exits that happen. Yeah, And those happen all the time. So, with Motley Fool Ventures, um, you talked about having hundreds and hundreds of people investing as opposed to a very small group of people investing very large checks. But it was still like pretty large checks. Still to be able to invest mm-hmm. in uh, alongside with a venture capital mm-hmm. firm fund it's still there's a pretty high barrier to entry. Uh, yeah, it is a high barrier to entry. For the fund that we launched, um, we, we, we needed what was called qualified purchasers and five million of investable assets or more in there. But um, we were fortunate enough to find a group of investors that could do that. They are wonderful people. Hello, LPs. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and we're working very hard to uh, put their money to work and to make sure that we find great investments for them. Mm-hmm. Now, just to clarify, that doesn't mean they had to invest five million dollars. They did not. They did not have to invest five million. They just have to have that much in investable assets. Yes, and exactly. that whole that whole process 
for you is that you have to somehow certify that. Not you personally, but there is a certification process. <laughs> yeah, there's a certification process for that, yes, to make sure. But we're the fund, I want to make it clear, the fund is closed now, so we're not marketing. Yeah. And uh, there's a there's a ghost of a lawyer somewhere. I can feel their presence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? I'll make it clear that the, the fund is should not be considered a solicitation to yeah. join the fund or to act right. the fund. The fund is closed. Um, but when the fund was opened, um, the, the minimum that you had to commit was $100,000. And another difference between venture capital and almost every other kind of investment is that you make that commitment, that commitment gets paid out over time, usually five to seven years of that, that commitment. Uh, this is the majority of it. So it can be, we tried to make it so that it was for, you know, a certain subset, uh, quite a reasonable opportunity to kind of get into the fund. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about investing as a venture capital fund, because the story has always been one of like a lot of misses and you just need one company to really, really take off. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that, about sort of the mindset of investing in all of these companies and mm-hmm. knowing that most of them are going to fail? <laughs> <laughs> that That is a typical mindset where uh, you will hear uh, stories about, you know, you invest in 10 companies, one or two of them will generate the majority of the returns and the rest don't matter. Um, we're trying to do things a little bit differently within the venture capital fund. Um, the way that we've uh, expressed it in our in our perspectives and documents was the idea that we expect maybe half of the companies we invest in to not work out and the other half to deliver between, you know, a 1x, 2x, or 5x and some um, ratio going up. It's it's an interesting dynamic. It's largely because we're investing in these companies so early mm-hmm. in their life cycles and there's probably more unknowns than knowns. Um, but that's, uh, again, when you think about the huge returns that can come from venture capital, I think the lesson for most people was that it's not without risk. I think venture capital is generally considered the riskiest of the asset classes. And I think that title actually is appropriately earned. But if you do have that risk appetite, it can be something that um, provides you some diversification and a reward for the risk that you're taking. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking back to the stories of like Theranos and WeWork, the recent ones that are always so fun to talk about, um, you know, you have people just dumping just an insane amount of money in these companies, and then when other people start poking around under the hood, especially in the case of WeWork, they're like, no, no, this company is not at all worth what you think it is. Like, how much information, like, how confident are you in what you're looking at when you're looking at their financials? In the case of WeWork, it was sounds like it was just a mess of a company and that SoftBank actually didn't really do enough due diligence, right? Like, they had a conversation in the back of a limo and that, and he's like, here's a bajillion dollars. <laughs> is that how you do it all? Uh, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know how many conversations in the back of a limo turn out really well. <laughs> so that should have been a sign right there. Um, but um, yeah, different Investors have different philosophies and different approaches. Um, I would have said uh, with us, and that's not to say that Motley Fool Ventures will never be on the, 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 the bad side of something that others would have seen, but there were signs in Theranos and in um, WeWork that probably would have kept us from investing. Um, particularly with WeWork, the amount of what we call related party transactions, where mm. the company is selling the CEO of the company is selling things to the company mm. <laughs> it just 
it feels as weird as it feels. So everyone, everyone, is, everyone that's listening to this or watching this and says, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, it doesn't sound right. Because it wasn't. <laughs> it doesn't sound right. So when you see those kind of situations, you kind of you can run for the hills a little bit and save yourself. And the idea with Theranos where uh, she was so protective of the idea and so resistant to having peer review. And um, there were some other you know little warning signs Um that would have made us stay away, but I think part of the problem with with those is because venture capital in many situations can be such a home run and strikeout mm-hmm. model that people see the rise in the valuations and they don't want to miss out and they know they only need one or two winners to make the portfolio uh, work that they get enticed into doing things that they wouldn't normally do. Well, I think we want to believe that, or at least people who are in venture capital, present company excluded, want to believe that they're the quote-unquote smartest guys in the room. But for me, being an outsider, I kind of often view it as, well, no, you're the guy or the woman in the room who's just got a really big fat checkbook, and you can throw money around and not really worry about it, right? Like If you're someone who doesn't have a lot of money and you're living paycheck to paycheck, you know where every penny is going. Mm -hmm. But if you have this kind of laissez-faire attitude of like, well, maybe this will work out, maybe it won't, here's a ton of money, and then you move on in your life, it just seems like it's an opportunity for just a lot of um, poor financial choices. But these are supposed to be some of the smartest people, the smartest Silicon Valley minds, for example. I sound like I'm, I sound like I'm trying to take down the liberal elite on our podcast. And I'm not. I'm not necessarily. But just this idea of people with just too much money and they're throwing it at a lot of ideas. Whereas the rest of us are like, I'll take some of that money. Well, that's a great question, Allison. I'm sure there's a question in there. There was somewhere. a question in there somewhere. There was a question in there somewhere. But this is what I would I would say in, in defense of the venture capital. Defend yourself. <laughs> oh, exactly. Oh, why was I invited here, bro? You told me they were going to be nice. <laughs> no. Um, to some degree, if I were to put my CFO hat on, it's a numbers game. So you invest in many companies. The most you can lose is 100%. The amount you can make is theoretically limitless, right? And so you're actually incentivized to take risk. And venture capital, in, in some respects, is 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 a pretty significant engine in the growth of of kind of the the, the economy and the amount of um, jobs that it creates and everything. Definitely punches above the, its weight it was putting in. So mm. people are in a business where you're rewarded. Your upside is unlimited and your downside is limited. And when you give anyone that situation, you actually do have the um, incentive to win in doubt take the risk because that's what's what's happening. And in fact, if you have the right kind of investors, they're investing in you to take the risk. I've had several conversations with some of my, my LPs where they're saying this is where I'm putting my risk capital. I you know, I understand I'm signing up for Mr. Toad's wild ride. You know <laughs> <laughs> not the not the teacup, you know, and in yeah. fact if you were to you know, in you know, people give you their money. They're looking for riskier opportunity. They're willing to lose it because they want the chance of the upside. Mm-hmm. Delivering them a return that's, me- man- that's measured in percentages is not what they want. They mm-hmm. want returns that are measured in multiples. And so, in that in that world, um, you are trying to you know take a little bit more risk. So this is where you go. This is where founders go, and this is where investors go if they're willing to 
balance the risk with the potential reward. Yeah. You mentioned the implications on society and higher jobs and stuff like that. What are some of the other broader implications? So you might hear, for example, that uh, people saying, well, it's because of this type of venture capital that we have fewer publicly traded stocks. You know, the number of publicly traded stocks have dropped in half over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that companies are coming public later mm-hmm. because they can. So you know, maybe the whole small cap premium that we've heard about for decades might disappear because now small caps are not, they come to the market so much later. When they come to the market, they're already large caps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is not so much driven by venture capital as it's driven by the regulatory environment. When people look at um, the cost associated with being public, um, they make make a decision that uh, maybe being private longer works. There's also a regulatory change um, which allowed private companies to have more investors before they're forced to go public. And if recall, it used to be once you got to 499 investors, you had to go public. Well, you didn't have to go public you had to embrace all the reporting requirements of a public company. So you got all the pain of being public with none right. of the benefits. So obviously people just went public. With the um, some of the recent changes, and I'm not 100% sure if this was part of the Jobs Act. It may have been a little bit before. But that limit was raised, I think, to 2000 or something like that. That was probably the biggest change that allowed companies to stay private longer. And with money, with companies staying private longer, more of the gains started happening in the private markets. So more investors then could put money to work into private companies um, than they could beforehand. So it's really the private longer phenomenon is largely kind of driven by a couple of changes in the regulations. One, making being public less attractive because of the regulatory environment. Talk about was it Dodd Frank or and then the um, and then the other one was the idea that you could have more investors and still stay private. <laughs> So some people listening to this might be like, "Oh, I'm kind of intrigued. I want to get in on this." Mm-hmm. So where can the average where can the average person go to learn more about venture capital and maybe invest some of their capital? Um, that's a good question, bro. There's a wide range of opportunities available now. There are what is called crowdfunding platforms, which is part of the new that was part of the Jobs Act. We call it Reg CF, where there are platforms you can go to. Uh, where people can invest as little as ten dollars, twenty dollars, whatever. So these are like the Kickstarter type of places. Yes, and it's okay. a little, yeah, the Kickstarter type places, but it's above above Kickstarter because that's not necessarily. I mean, it's a crowdfunding platform, but the ones I'm talking about are where you can actually invest money to own shares of the company. Oh, okay. Yeah, Kickstarter, um, you don't get equity in the company; you just get the thing. Gotcha. Right. And so one one that uh, we know about that was mentioned very public is one where you could go and do crowdfunding. Um, and it's not an endorsement for them, just kind of aware, making awareness of it. There are other platforms that are more um, affiliated with angel investors that will allow you to um, invest in their offices as well. Um, not in a position to endorse any of them right now. They are available. They all have their pros and cons. And so maybe it's another uh, conversation that we could have in a few months. When we'll have you back, back on. I mean, relevant, sure, yeah. to talk about ways that companies that people know might have opportunities for folks. I'll take invest. your call if you want to come back on in a few months and talk. Okay, yeah. excellent. Yeah, excellent. Um, well, where do you see venture capital as a? It's not an industry, but where do you see it going? Like, what do you think the future of venture capital is? That is a very interesting question. I know it's really <laughs> wide open too. It is. Honestly, I think 
if there's anything that we're going to see in the trend of venture capital is that right now, uh, if you look at the numbers, it's highly, highly concentrated industry. I mean, uh, between uh, California, New York, and Boston, I think 75% of the venture capital dollars happen in those three areas. There are a lot of efforts happening now to kind of democratize access to venture capital from the founder perspective. Um, I think that's going to be the biggest trend where you see venture capital dollars being spread a little bit more evenly across the country, the demographic shift where more women and, and people of color are going to get opportunities to access that venture capital to realize their, their dreams. Now, that's probably the biggest shift that I see coming right now. Awesome. Olin? You want to stick around for a quick little game? I would love to. I would love to. <laughs> want right. to play a game? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to NetSuite for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And if you're a small business owner, you probably have a hodgepodge of business systems. You have one for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts your bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com fool. That's netsuite.com fool to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. netsuite.com fool. thing about venture capital, and we already kind of talked about it, is that there are uh, hits and misses, and there are some kind of cuckoo crazy ideas that people come up with. <laughs> so, not too long ago, everything was Uber for this, right? It's Uber for this, Uber for that. We'll invest in it because it's an Uber for something. Um, so, I thought it might be fun to go back to 2016 and look at some of the more interesting startups that were at <laughs> TechCrunch's Tech Disrupt Conference yes. and see, are they still around? You want to see and see if you guys can guess. All right. All okay. right. Are you ready? Yes. I'm going to okay. read my coin so I can flip it. <laughs> Did it survive? Air Dates. It's a dating app for the duration of your flight. And I'll put dating in quotation oh marks. <laughs> that is a... Was there a miss? Is that okay? Yeah, did it survive? Is it still around? That crashed and burned. <laughs> I'm going to say it's not around either. Yeah? All right. So, if you want, I'll describe it a little bit. You log in from your phone, and it shows you who else on the flight is up for a little chat. The CEO told Mashable the app is about making connections in the air. On a lot of dating apps, you swipe, you match, but you never really meet, which I would argue is actually kind of a benefit of a lot of these apps. Uh, so, yeah. Is AirDate still around? Sort of. It's now called... Buckle up and has expanded its scope beyond flight to quote commuter crushes, in-flight infatuations, and local lovers. Date whenever, wherever, and whoever you want. Oh my goodness gracious, what's oh this world coming to? I know. All right, next one. Skunk Lock. It's the first ever bicycle, motorcycle, scooter, and moped lock to fight back against thieves using noxious, vomit-inducing chemicals. I hope it's still in business. 
Yeah, I wouldn't hope so also. <laughs> just, just for the comedic factor. Because now, now I know what to get people for Christmas. Right. Uh, so the best I could tell is maybe. So there is a website, and they did launch an Indiegogo campaign back in 2016, but some people, as of 2018, were still complaining that they didn't get their locks. So, uh, I don't know, but you can go to their website and stinks. see. And can you order? Bro. Bro. Can, can you order from their website? I don't know. So, I don't so, know what's going on So, that's, a, that's an interesting dynamic. Is oh, that it's, it's yeah, very it hard to, to the Indiegogo campaign. It's very hard to tell when startups go out of business. Some of the larger ones, um, they're kind of public announcements, and some of the more responsible ones will send a note um, to their subscribers or their customers telling them that they're ceasing operations. But the vast majority of startups just kind of sit there. Yeah. Like you, like you see, if it, if it will probably go one autopilot. Um, you know, they get a skeleton crew, the website stays up because it's really cheap to do that. And if a sale comes in here and there, great. But um, it's hard to tell. Yeah, this mm-hmm. one's hard to tell. But the founder definitely looks like a serial entrepreneur, and so I was like, okay. And so that's okay, and I think that's actually kind of healthy for the entrepreneur. You try things, some things work, some things don't, and then you uh, move on, so... Yeah. Out of curiosity, how much input do you have in the companies? Do they do they call you up for advice, or do you say, like, hey, have you tried this, or is it pretty much pretty hands-off? We try to form a relationship with the companies that we invest in. Ideally, we look for opportunities where we can add more value than just capital, but being founder-friendly, which is how we describe ourselves and how we act, we want to make it clear that it is the founder's company and we can give them insight and advice and perspective. But ultimately, we're there to help them execute their vision. Got and it. so we, we provide input, but it's their call on what they do. Yeah. Well, you also have a unique um, uh, point of view because you navigated the Motley Fool through a lot of us taking in venture um, outside money and venture capital, which I imagine probably helps color a lot of what you do. <laughs> Those were some fun times. Fun times, and yeah, and, and you know what's really, you know what's really special about me? <laughs> where do we start? Right, right? I don't know where to start. <laughs> I have yet to meet a founder that says one day I want to be a CFO, <laughs> and so I, I bring insights to the table that. People aren't really looking to kind of <laughs> gain themselves. So it's really fairly easy conversations when I'm starting to talk about my area of expertise and they don't fall asleep right away. Yeah, that's a good sign. <laughs> All right, the next company is Bakery Scan. It does what it says, essentially. Uh, so it's the world's first attempt to apply image identification technology to checkout settlement, bringing innovation to checkout operations at bakery shops. So it scans and identifies baked. It's technology that scans and identifies baked goods. Is that like a chocolate barcode? <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm gonna say it's no longer in business. I'm just to be contrary. I'm saying it is still in business. Well, you're the CFO. So I mean, the best I could tell is that yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, again, it's a website, and the website is entirely in Japanese. But basically. <laughs> It's you put so if you've ever if you've been to like a Japanese bakery or, or no. like a Korean bakery, you there's no. all these amazing baked goods and you put them on your tray and then you go and you check out. And so what you do is you basically take your tray and then you put it under this scanner. I was hoping it was an app where I hold my phone and I look at something and it tells me what it is, but it's not. It's mm. it's for it to help the checkout process. So it's a business tech yeah. thing. We we looked at a company once and I cannot name but it did a very good job of that. You could take a picture of something, it would identify it and tell you where you could buy it. And oh, if it couldn't no. find it exactly, 
um, it would find something close to it. Hmm. It was very, very cool. And yeah. they got purchased before we could invest in them. Mm. No, it's sad. It's the fish that got away. Oh, <laughs> there'll be more. <laughs> Late at night, he still thinks about her. <laughs> <laughs> Some good tech. All right, the last one is dog PC. The catchphrase, help your dog achieve their dream. Oh, I thought you were talking about a dog in a letter. No, dog. it's it's a PC for your. It's a personal a computer. A PC. A PC. Oh. <laughs> How did you get that? It's winter time. <laughs> okay, uh, it is a personal computer for your dog. Ah. Uh, um. Knowing how much money people spend on their dogs and want to treat their dogs like people, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say no because, like, my dog has probably moved on to an Apple Watch at this point. <laughs> so, this is what. Maybe. <laughs> is that what you're going to say? <laughs> no. no. I'm going to say sadly no. Oh, that's too bad. See, so, right? So, it was, a, it was a PC where your dog could play games like Fruit Ninja. And you could also video chat. And I also just did, I imitated a dog playing Fruit Ninja for you listeners at home. Uh, and you could also chat with it like over the video screen and there's a camera and you could dispense treats. And it's basically there to keep your lonely dog entertained while you're um, out of the house. I think it's amazing. Um, it was brought to you by a company called Tesla, but not the Tesla you're thinking of, a Hong Kong-based Tesla. And no, you can't get it anymore, which I'm like, why not? What? This is amazing. People love their dogs. Sure Wouldn't do. you want to give your dog a PC? But I did find something else you can get your dog for Christmas. And what's that? It's basically, remember the game Simon, where you hit the yep. different colors and like you can get that for your dog, uh-huh. but insanely expensive. Wouldn't it be better for your cat? Because they like to do that kind of thing. I don't know. It's probably a crossover product. I don't know. But anyway, so no, you can't get your dog a PC. At least not from this Hong Kong company called Tesla that probably got stupid into the oblivion. Problem was, this company said the glass wouldn't break if you threw a rock at it. It <laughs> didn't last. Though. You know, I missed that. Is that what happened with the truck thing? He's like, yes. the glass won't break and he threw Hopefully. a rock. I saw the picture and I was like, did that? Something happen And then there. he said, that's weird. Let's try it again. <laughs> and it broke again. All right. Well, you know what? That's the show. That's all I have for you. There were some other interesting items um, at the at uh, 2016 TechCrunch Disrupt, but they were not safe for radio. So, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, it was an exciting time. The 2016s. <laughs> Olin, thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, you want to come back in a couple to a few months yes. and talk about something that is going to be near and dear to your heart? Oh, sure. I would love to. Right. <laughs> Olin, thank you so much. You're All right. the best. All right. Bye bye. The show is edited stinkily by Rick Engdahl. I'm going back to the skunk block on that one. Yeah. All right. Our email is answers at fool.com. Oh, hey, it's thanks. Giving and the holidays, and what better gift to give your favorite podcast than the gift of a review on iTunes <laughs> or you wherever go. you listen to your podcast? So, hey, if you have a moment, we would love it if you went and gave us a review. It helps other people find us and listen to us and love us. So, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.